Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Junior Faculty Development Series in the Department of Pediatrics. My name is Anthony Porto, Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the section of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Vice Chair for Ambulatory Operations. And I'm Jaspreet Loyal, an Associate Professor and Pediatric Hospitalist in the Department of Pediatrics. Our topic today is on women in academic medicine. Our objectives for today's discussion are the following. By the end of this session, participants will be able to, one, recognize the current landscape with respect to women in academics at Yale and the Department of Pediatrics, two, understand the challenges unique to women going through the promotions process and resources available for support, and three, implement strategies towards success as a junior faculty. Joining us today from the Department of Pediatrics are Marie Egan and Panina Weiss. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Marie and Panina, can you introduce yourselves to our listeners? My name is Marie Egan. I am a professor of pediatrics and cellular and molecular physiology. I am the interim division chief for respiratory, allergy, immunology, and sleep medicine, and the vice chair for research. Hey, everybody. I'm Panina Weiss. I am the vice chair for education in the Department of Pediatrics. I'm an associate professor on the clinician educator track um, in pediatrics and pediatric pulmonology and sleep medicine. Great. And tell us a little bit about your career path at Yale and who and what do you attribute your successes to? Wow. Um, This is Marie. So... um, career path at Yale. I came to Yale fresh out of fellowship um, and joined the faculty as an assistant professor um, and have sort of risen through the ranks here. My success, I think I'd have to attribute that mostly to my mentors, both here and um, before I arrived. I've had a great array of people who have really helped me with uh, my pulmonary career, my research career, and my life choices. So, And Mrs. Panina, and I'd say that, well, I was going to start with uh, how I got here, but first let me tell you where I started. I came here as a resident. I actually did a couple of fellowships here. I did critical care. I did pulmonary. Um, I did research. And then I actually left for about six years to go to Bridgeport Hospital. But I miss this place so much that I came back. Um, And I will say I was probably, I didn't have the benefit of a mentor at the time. And so my path was a little bit more circuitous. But I do have to thank Al Friedman, who I think made a really big impact on my career trajectory. Uh, He's the one who kind of initiated me into the administrative part of program uh, development. I became a super fellowship director when that was really not very popular. Um, and then ultimately, he also got me linked up with PrEP uh, Pulmonary, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which kind of helped me to gain some national recognition. So kind of kind of chaotic. I sometimes feel like entropy, but I eventually found the right place. And I also want to add that I think um, another important part is I basically followed what I love doing. 
And I really think that that was a very important part in terms of getting where I am. Thank you. And we've actually talked about mentorship a lot in this podcast series, so I'm grateful that you brought that up. Our podcast today is about women in academic medicine. Can you help to give our listeners a sense for what the landscape for women with academic careers is at Yale and within the Department of Pediatrics, and perhaps how we compare to other departments uh, nationally? Well, um, I the the landscape for women at Yale is um, well, future is very bright. I think that um, it's been an institution that has had uh, difficulties um, having women uh, rise through the ranks and have a lot of women um, in faculty positions in the university in general. And certain schools within the university have more. Um, I think more trouble um, with uh, uh, having a faculty that's very diverse in male and female. Um, and um, the School of Medicine is probably one that um, has had its difficulties. I think right now the university, if you actually look at the landscape, there's a lot of faculty schools um, in which the faculty are about 50-50 or 60-40 as far as 40% women and 60% men. The School of Medicine um, is a little different. Um, there's more men than women. Um, and even though at the entry level, there's an equal number of men and women, as you rise through the ranks, there seem to be fewer women. And part of that might be um, past history and generational. But the other piece of this is it um, it can be a difficult place um, for people to um, succeed or to know what career path they need to take. Um, and so, for instance, the number of chairs that are female within the School of Medicine is about 30%. The number of uh, uh, Division chiefs is about 19 or 20 percent. So, the, again, it's a predominantly male environment as far as those leadership positions. There are um, active groups, and the university is aware of this um, uh, problem and um, has really uh, put together a number of task force to improve that. And I think they're working very hard. So now there is, uh, there have been a lot of things put into place to try to recruit uh, women and uh, to make sure that they are mentored and their careers are developed uh, in a way that's equivalent to men, but perhaps a little different because their needs might be a little different. Well, that's that. Those numbers are quite shocking in some ways, <laughs> and. It's interesting in 2018 that we're having a podcast about women in academia, and I think it's really important that we do. Do you feel like there are pathways to success in academia for women that are different and certain things that need to be put into place to address these differences? I do think that things are different, and I think that in general, one of the things that has come up is when um, uh, when women, there there are times when um, uh, women uh, may not uh, be as uh, 
as assertive or as um, uh, demonstrative uh, in a larger group. Um, way people are socialized, the the dynamics that happen in a group um, don't often play to sometimes women's strengths, um, uh, and I think that uh, uh, there are times where. Um, uh, parts of your life, other parts of your life, um, can become, fall on your shoulders that um, historically and traditionally fall on women's shoulders, and sometimes making that um, balance with family and work. And uh, when if you have children, if your kids get sick, who goes to pick them up? Um, it could be either parent, but often it is. Um, mom. And so that becomes very difficult when you're trying to also rise through the ranks uh, in the faculty at the same time. And so there are often decisions that you make to uh, slow down your progress, which is fine. But then uh, over time, there are often people in positions of power who then don't realize that you still want those opportunities and that it might be a better time for you five years down the line than now. Um, so I think that it's important for people to be cognizant of all of the issues and really um, uh, try to make sure that they um, look at people in a, in a gender-neutral manner, but I think that's very, um, that's very different. And we all have um, these unintentional biases um, which people have studied uh, at, at length. So I'm not sure what – sometimes people will say, well, we just need more female mentors. But I'm not sure that's it because women carry the same biases <laughs> as, as their male counterparts. So I think, you know, one thing that I just wanted to add, so I'm glad you talked about mentorship, is I do think that now some of the mentors kind of have a better work-life integration. I think that before, at least I didn't really have great examples of that. And I certainly went through the struggles that Marie had talked about. I think the other thing is, even though you might be faced with the same choices, and I do have to say, I do think men right now probably are bearing more responsibility for the family, which, you know, as opposed to traditional, I think there's a better recognition, and especially with the newer generation or younger, about the work-life balance. And so you might have the same decisions, but I think that the tension that women feel probably just um, leads more to burnout, and it's certainly very well recognized that women are at higher risk of burnout. And so whereas the choices may be the same, the perception of, um, you know, again, family work-life integration may be, may be different. So I, I wanted to follow up on on um, something that Marie brought up about task forces that are in place that are thinking about some of these issues. Would you be able to share some details with us about what these groups are doing? Sure. So the groups have been reviewing um, where things are at Yale right now, and then they've been coming up with uh, potential ways to improve things. So for instance, um, uh, for positions uh, positions of leadership. So when people are looking for chairs or for division chiefs, there are search committees that are put together. Search committee then tries to come up with a list of people who might fit this position. And often there's can even be a, a search uh, 
company that helps you find a firm that helps you find potential candidates. Um, and when those committees sit in a room, those committees um, often the makeup of who sits at that table when the applicants are being looked at or the potential applicants are being looked at, um, who sits at that table can have a very big influence on who makes it to the next level. So if those committees are predominantly made up of, of men or and there are there's very few women there, um, often the number of female candidates that even come across the table are very low. So there's been a push to make sure that there are more women within the search committee Committee so that uh, they can uh, then also bring names forward because also there is an uh, sometimes the women candidates are not even brought to attention um, by those search firms. It depends on how you search. It depends on who you ask. So that um, those are that's one uh, thing that is changing. The changing of uh, or the looking at uh, for women. Um, how much time, um, when it comes to a ladder position, uh, do you spend at each level of that ladder position? And and is there an issue with uh, making sure you come up for promotion in a timely manner? Or you, or, or is this something that's not on the radar of your division chief or your chair? So there are ways to try to make that a more um, uh, standardized practice throughout the School of Medicine. And, there, and the, these kinds of things, and, and even an initiative to uh, try to uh, really hire and focus on hiring women for certain positions of leadership so that um, you can have a larger um, number um, to try to really um, increase the number of women within the School of Medicine at all levels. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. I'm also curious, um, apart from system level, department level changes, do you have any strategies for junior faculty women on an individual level that that would help could help them succeed or rise rise through the ranks? So you take that first. Yeah. So I, I'll start with that one. Um, so. Two things immediately come to mind. One is uh, really seek mentors who can become role models for you because, you know, part of mentorship is talking about, you know, not only the the hows but the how to deal with it. And so I think that that's really important. I also think that leadership training, particularly for women, is um, something of – you know, that's really important. Marie alluded to the assertiveness, but it's also just leadership. I think, you know, it's important to deal, to develop the skills to, number one, I mean, both men and women obviously have vision, but again, how to communicate it effectively are part of leadership skills. And how to, how to implement your vision, which may be very different uh, for for women than men, not always, but how to build that community, how to build cooperativity, and that may look very different, um, but it's valued and it can be incredibly effective. And I do think, you know, I think there's one thing that's very interesting when I think about leadership skills, and we're all going to this, um, you know, like how does a male lead 
versus how much had as a female lead and also had as a female pediatrician lead. I mean, which also boils down to we tend to have more of a collaborative style, which is actually very, very powerful. So that shouldn't be minimized. So therefore, to develop kind of, you know, more the dominant skills or the enthusiasm skills, you know, and the, the other is analytical. There's something very strong to being a servant leader. And I think that's actually under-recognized. So, so women can use a natural tendency in order to become very effective leaders. I think that uh, the other thing for uh, that uh, women should probably think about, and, and men as well, but um, is that when you're looking at your career or your or your trajectory, um, you of course your career isn't something that just happens. It actually is something that is planned. Um, I mean, and you can you need to make sure that the people who are your mentors or the people in leadership roles who you look for uh, guidance uh, from is, are going to know what your goals are. And it actually means you have to spend a little time to try to think through those goals and not be afraid of reaching out or or, or stretching a little. And um, the only thing that you might do is stumble, but that's okay. If you don't stumble, you probably haven't reached far enough because we all stumble, right? Um, and I think that uh, on the flip side of that, your mentors have to know that, you know what, I, I do – if you have those connections nationally, if you have those connections locally, please put my name up. How do I get involved in this? Just be inquisitive because I think those are things that are going to be very important. Sometimes people think, oh, my gosh, you know, Jespreet, she's so busy that I'm not going to um, burden her with one more thing to do. But you want your mentor to at least ask you. You can say no. You have to learn how to be that inter-toddler, too, but you need to be asked, right, so that you can make that decision and be treated as that adult, and people shouldn't spare you from things. So that uh, And trying to make sure you have that relationship with somebody. And if I could just add one thing, and, and I smile when I think about it, sit at the big table. Don't sit in the back. Sit at the big table and look for opportunities. I'm smiling here as Panina brings this up because she has given me that advice very directly. And, you know, I, I think your points about being assertive and um, balancing work life is are, are very true. And for me personally, um, sitting at the table is intimidating. Um, and it does take a mentor like Panina to encourage me to sit at the table. And that's um, helped me a lot. So thank you. You're doing a great job sitting <laughs> at that table. <laughs> so, I mean, this is this is I mean, the importance of mentorship. I think really can't be undermined, right? And trying to find probably not just one mentor, but a few mentors that may meet all your the needs. What in our department, and spe- specifically, what is in place for junior faculty women who need who to help them succeed, and also what. Uh, isn't there that there's an opportunity to incorporate so we can give to new faculty as they arrive here at Yale? Well, you know, I think that things are changing within the department. I think that 
historically for all junior faculty, there's been the faculty development group, um, which is supposed to review what you've done, where you want to be, how things feel, so that they can give you more oversight from from a more distant view than your mentors, per se. I think what's been very clear to the department is that although it's a wonderful idea and a great first step, that it's not enough to really help junior faculty to go from position A to, to B to really make sure that they launch, right? And, and so um, na- right now, the department is working hard at trying to get every uh, faculty person and your division chief is supposed to help with this. Identify who's going to be your mentor, who are your go-to people to really help you shepherd through this world of academic medicine because it's not so simple. And again, it shouldn't be a luck of the draw if you happen to find that mentor who is who I can still email and say life in the you know the line, and then I get a call from. Um, from uh, one of my former mentors who is in New York and he's like, hey, kid, what's up? And I'm no kid anymore, but um, I can still uh, reach out to him even years later. Not everybody has that. So I think it's really important for us as a community to make sure we have some of that in place for faculty. And I think that's what we're trying to build um, within the department now. So everybody is successful. If you come here and the department invests in you, they want you to to succeed. So how do we make sure that happens? You know, and Marie alluded to um, the change in leadership, which um, is really, really important. So first of all, we've got four vice chairs uh, that are women, which I think is really a testament to Cliff, is that there really is no no gender bias. And so I think we live it. I think the fact that Marietta, you know, in, in diversity and inclusion is a vice chair says a lot about our leadership. The other thing that I think um, many of the junior faculty or the other faculty are, may not be aware of is that one, um, Cliff has invested in leadership training for the division chiefs so that they can uh, become leaders to their faculty. And the other thing is that we actually sit and we review with the section chiefs every faculty member in the section to figure out what their needs are, whether it's research, education, um, in support for clinical activity, is that there's really an effort to Uh, try to identify uh, the faculty. And then the other thing is just to add a more structured kind of mentorship is uh, Jean has been working on a mentorship program that many of our faculty are engaged in, as well as, again, identifying and making sure that every junior faculty member has a mentor right now. Pina, I'm just curious to follow up on... um, it's great that the the leadership in the department are getting further faculty development and training. How does that filter down to the junior faculty? Oh, extremely. And again, I, I have to say that uh, the it's called, I think, Marie would know, Inspire Core. And so the things that they focus on are, one is to, again, to give 
section chiefs an idea of leadership and how to lead. But second is how to get feedback from faculty to do 360 in order to 360 evaluations in order to make them be more effective, as well as if everybody noticed there was a survey that was sent out. Oh, I have lots of lots of ways to answer that. There was a survey that was sent out by Matt Grossman probably about maybe now three months ago. I'm looking to see how often the section chiefs meet with their faculty. Uh, incentive section incentive is actually based on the section chiefs meeting with the faculty and following through. And oh, by the way, so there's very important work on uh, demonstrating that burnout or you know, conversely, that resiliency is improved by leadership at the sectional level. And in fact, we're going to have the author of that, uh, Tate Shanafeld, come to give grand rounds and to meet with the section chiefs. Um, and he's really like the maven at this. So it's very, you know, I, so I think that at multiple levels, uh, there is increased emphasis on development of faculty by development of leadership. That's great. I wanted to switch gears um, a little bit and talk about the promotions process, which I think is stressful for junior faculty at large, but um, uh, for me personally, uh, felt a little daunting. Um, what advice do you have for women junior faculty in particular as they start navigating this process? So something that Laura Mint uh, told me when I was a junior faculty person, and so that f there's a ton of forms, right? There's the schedule. I feel like it's more complicated than taxes. Schedule A, B, C, D, right? Uh, your CV, it has to be in a certain way. Dot this I, cross this T, certain font, the whole bit. So there's a supplement to that, right? And what she told me to do, um, whether you do it directly on that or not, is as you do things, Keep track of them. So once a month, once, uh, you know, sit down. Did, were you invited to give a talk? Did you put in an abstract? Were you, you know, you know what extra things did you do? And, and, and did you, were you asked for advice? Did you do something online? The things that sort of are one-offs and that you, you don't even think about, um, make sure you write them down. Capture everything. Um, you may throw away half of it, but um, it's really important to document what you actually do, not only locally, but uh, regionally and nationally. And sometimes we do these things and you don't even pay attention. You know, your friend from residency who's now someplace far away asks for you to help them with two or three things, you know, write a chapter or this or that or whatever or even advice, make sure you capture that and so that you have a list of what your accomplishments are. Pay attention to what you do and how you spend your day. And I think it's real important to start that early because then when you're handed that form <clears throat> uh, after year two or three and they're like, oh, fill this out. And you're like, oh, my goodness, I can't remember. All. So you only put down, you know, three things that, you know, you did when in reality, there's a list as long as your arms. So make sure you document those things because I think that's really important. I think the whole process of uh, uh, promotion here is complex. 
it um, is ever-changing um, as tracks change and what the expectations are. But I also think it's really important, and I don't think it happens enough, but I think that's changing, is people really need to be able to sit down with their division chief or whoever their mentors are and actually understand what the process is. Um, and if somebody who is your mentor doesn't really know and just sort of says, well, you know, it, it happens, no, no, no. Uh, you need to find somebody else. And even if it means talking to one of the uh, associate deans um, uh, for faculty development, do that. I th- and there's stuff on the website as well. But, you know, it, it can, depending on your track, um, and the expectations are different. Um, but it's just important to document what you do and have a very good sense of what it is that's going to, what's going to count. Um, what's going to be important for your promotion? Because, too, there are only so many hours in the day. So you really do need – your career doesn't just happen. You really do need to plan it. And so you can have goals that you can easily reach. But otherwise, it can be daunting and fairly overwhelming. And I'm not sure that uh, either the current division chiefs or even the faculty development uh, group give you – the advice one needs to really make sure that all that documentation is in place. I, I think that's so true. Trying to fill that CV supplement two days before the meeting is not a good idea, so don't do it. And then I think the other thing I realized is going through the process is that you don't have to wait for that one-year or two-year mark to meet with that group. Mm-mm. You can meet with somebody from that group earlier to get the ball rolling. Right. I think it's so key because I th- sometimes what can happen is you, you're getting your feet wet at Yale and you're maybe doing more clinical, more research, and you lose focus of the whole big picture of what's going to happen. And three years come and go, and, and, and you don't have it necessarily – you haven't planned it. So it just uh, can be more – even make it more challenging at that time. What – Along those same lines, what advice do you have? We talked about all these opportunities in terms of speaking to your section chief, finding mentors, potential leadership programs. As a new faculty member coming in, who should what should be the process they take, and how can they find out about these resources so they can sort of hit the ground running, so they can sort of prepare what to do? Like, how can they um, sort of figure out how to navigate this big system that is here so they're making the most of their time here. I have a couple of suggestions. I'm, I'm, I would hope that some of this um, is presented at the new faculty uh, re- retreat or orientation. I think that the other thing that's going to be important, I know people do, a, you, know, you may be off-site, but attending the meetings that are departmental are probably important to get yourself uh, involved in the community that is pediatrics, not just your silo, division, special interest, right? So that you have a better sense of what's going on. And then I do think, again, it's going to be uh, you can sit down and request a meeting. And uh, at one point, I think Jean and I were thinking, we'd love to be able to meet with everybody uh, as soon as you're onboarded and things like that to understand, you know, what is what are your goals and what is your vision so that you can um, talk to people in more senior positions who might be able to direct you to those resources that you need. So a couple of other things that I was thinking about is, um, so one of the things that we are developing is kind of a 
a list of resources, uh, both from faculty and what faculty do, so you can look at the interest and see if there's a faculty member who's aligned. I really do believe that the division chiefs or the section chiefs are your first go-to because they should also know. I mean, you know, they're they're very they're veteran, and so. They should be able to point you to other, you know, and, and to other faculty members. The other thing is, you know, Marie alluded it, uh, to it is that all the vice chairs are available. And so, you know, for if one has a discrete, you know, a specific question about research, then Jean and Marie are available. If there's something about medical education, then I'm always available and I'm always looking for faculty members who are interested in it. Like, I'm so excited when I find somebody who's interested in it. And so I think between that and, you know, kind of central resources, I think that there's definitely a start. And then, again, if you're just confused and not sure and you've gone to your section chief, then come to one of the vice chairs. I mean, honestly, I really, really believe that um, I know that each one, and, and certainly, sorry, Cliff, if you really is Cliff is a wonderful resource and he's really available to all the faculty members. So again, there are multiple layers of people either ally interests or just who are really really invested in your professional development and there are many resources. I think it's it's kind of special that there's three vice chairs sitting here. Yeah, I know, but exactly right. <laughs> for a brand new junior faculty, how would they or where do they go to find out who the vice chairs are, for example? And I think part of it is I, we would, we, I would hope that orientation, since all the vice chairs will be represented at orientation, would be the first step. Um, also, for the junior faculty work group, we're doing these podcasts, but we're also doing live seminars throughout the year. And the way we run it this year is to allow – during the five live in-person lunch sessions to have them meet the vice chairs to be, make it more like a Q&A. So I think in that aspect, but also I, I want to echo Panina and Marie, depending on what your needs are, clinical, ambulatory, whatever those are, research, education, really feel comfortable just emailing us and we can meet ad hoc or even do a little group one where if it's about a couple of things, we can just meet together. You know, We meet with the section chiefs, but we have, would love to also meet with some of the faculty who to help them on a certain path as well. Yeah, I, I think that the vice chairs are um, all pretty – well, they might be intimidating, but they're really actually very approachable <laughs> people. So, and, and if we don't know an answer, which is often, we often know people who do know those answers. So we might be able to at least put you in the right direction and, and help you find that pathway. So before we close, I, I did want to follow up on one conversation that maybe we started before we, we even started this podcast, but that was about um, attrition of women faculty as they move up um, from assistant to associate and above. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and what could we be maybe doing differently or paying more attention to to help address that? Right. In general, at the School of Medicine, it's it's been a problem, as I said, uh, and, and and this is a long-standing problem. I think often when people enter the pipeline, uh, 
that there's about a 50-50 split or a 45-55 split. And then as you go from assistant professor to associate professor and then to full professor, you'll notice that the predominance of the faculty become male. Um, and part of that is uh, there have been a lot of things historically that have been looked at. Um, one is, and it also takes women more years to get to the next rank. So for some women, um, uh, when they're at the assistant level, again, it, it may be that the demands to uh, move up the ranks of the more traditional tracks were um, not going to be, uh, didn't resonate and weren't going to work well when trying to work Work and life balance in, into action for the and 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 the response to that is that the school has recognized that uh, there are more, there's more than one track or more than two tracks and they have now diversified the track system so that is helpful but those changes are really relatively new and so it's been harder uh, you know we haven't seen actually the the output of those changes yet. I think the other thing is uh, for women, uh, again, childbearing has been an issue, but there's an extension on your clocks now for um, child uh, for people who have uh, little babies, and uh, so that uh, is probably helpful. I think that uh, the other thing that has been a, uh, probably an issue at times is that m some of the Women faculty have uh, come um, as a as a team because they have a spouse that's uh, also being recruited, and so if your spouse is recruited away, um, you often follow. Not always, but um, it, it, and so that that's an, another issue. And, and for some women, it again the the issue has been that the environment has not always been as um, as. Uh, Supportive. So, uh, in the past, if you were doing bulk of clinical work, but you weren't getting promoted, um, after a while, uh, there are people who would leave to go to private practice, and so that that's another issue that has come up in the past. But again, I think that the school is trying to recognize what their deficiencies are and trying to work on that, um, along with uh, an array of other things they're trying to put into place. But it is a, it's a work in progress, let's say. Do you think this is also happening, just to follow up on that, is this also happening on a national level where women are leaving academia or is there, or, 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 or I mean, I'm sure that other hospitals and universities are, are addressing it, but is that something that needs to be addressed more globally? It's a, I think a, a global issue with, between women in academic medicine and then women in science and uh, it, it, there's, there's a, there's a real paucity at times and um, there, there does seem to be, uh, again, the, there are subtleties of where um, mentorship occurs, how people get uh, looked at to for different positions or directorships. So again, you know, with the School of Medicine, the number of women who lead or direct centers and stuff is 10%. And so they're very, those are not positions that are usually, they're thought of, but uh, if, if those kinds of things happen uh, in... Uh, in venues that women are not at, um, that becomes a, an issue. So you're just not 
it's not nothing personal, but you're just not even thought of. But uh, those are things that are changing. People in business will tell you that some of them are not really fond of playing golf, but they've learned to play golf because <laughs> that's where all the deals right. happen. And again, I mean, if you think about it, like, okay, so I'm, I'm sitting here looking at Jess Spreet, who's now the medical director of the inpatient unit. You know, we've got Cynthia, who is now, you know, running the children's hospital, Marianne Hatfield, and you've got the vice chairs. I, so I do think that it's much more positive here. I think, if anything, we may be bucking a national trend I do think that there's understanding and support. I think, you know, so I think that while there's there are national trends that are concerning, I think there are lots of stresses in academic medicine now that we didn't have 10 years ago with, uh, you know, stresses for clinical productivity in academics. Um, but I do see just a positive kind of trajectory, at least in our immediate environment. I, I completely agree. I mean, it's it's really refreshing to to look around and see women in leadership positions in, in our department. Um, so thank you so much for this really enlightening and engaging discussion. Before we close, do either of you have anything else to add? So I would just add to it. I think, you know, in all of this, one of the things we kind of touched on is the well, two things. One, the importance of prioritization. Through all of this, you know, to thy own self be true, you really need to think about what's important and to prioritize that and don't lose sight of it. And the other thing is just to reiterate what Marie said about goal setting. I think it's really important. Again, you can get lost in what's immediately around you, but it's important not to lose sight in what's important to you and then how to achieve that. Um, and then always do what you love. It doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. As long as it's something that you really, really love, um, then you're on the right track. Yeah, you're going to work really hard and lots of hours, more hours than you think you're going to work, right? Um, <laughs> but it. And, and so you better love what you're doing, right? Otherwise, you may want to rethink those goals. But it's, it's uh, you have to, I've been here a very long time. And, uh, um, and sometimes, you know, things have not been as smooth as others. But I'm here because also the community that's here and the people that are here, they're great. I love coming to work every day. I have fun um, and um and it's kind of a blast to think that, you know, you can do what you love, make a difference in people's lives and and really, you know, make have some impact, at least in a small way. So it's uh it's it's kind of a privilege. So yeah. I think awesome. it's, it's an honor. Yeah. Great. This is awesome. This has been a great conversation. Um, I want to thank both Marie and Panina for coming today. And um, thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much.